Joshua chapter 3, verse number 14. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan and the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as they that bear the Ark were come unto Jordan and the feet of the priests that bear the Ark were dipped in the brim of the water for Jordan overflowed all its banks at the time of the barley harvest in the spring that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up on a heap very far from the city of Adam, that is, Zeratan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even toward the salt sea, the dead sea, failed. The water ran out and were cut off. And the people of Israel passed over right against Jericho, on the riverbed. And the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would direct our thoughts today. And even though we're making spiritual applications of an actual historical event, we pray that our application would be biblical and helpful. We pray for your will to be done in us. In our Savior's name, amen. You may be seated. Have you got any rivers? The lyrics ask, got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things no one else can do. Got any problems you think are unsolvable? Got any burdens too heavy to bear? God has the power to do the impossible. If you will call, he will hear your prayer. Of course, no hymn can fully express all that is in the writer's heart, and no hymn can express all the theological background we might need in order to complete the thought that uh, may have been or may not have been in the writer's head. In this case, yes, God can do the impossible, and we're encouraged to pray for the miraculous. But remember, there are conditions to be met before we cross the uncrossable river. So this is our ninth message in our series on practical faith. Some of the requisite conditions are laid out before us in Joshua chapters 3 and 4. Israel had an uncrossable, well, was it? There was a river in front of them. Let's just put it that way. There was a river in front of them. Without ever using the word, we see in this event the need of faith. About six miles from Israel's encampment at Abel Shittim lay the flooded, swollen Jordan River. Did you know the Bible never says that it was uncrossable? We're simply told that it was overflowing its banks. 
At this time of year, the snows on Mount Hermon and up there in Lebanon had filled up the Sea of Galilee, and that was flowing down the Jordan River toward the Dead Sea. And the, the, the river was in flood stage. And in fact, individuals and small groups could still cross the river. The two spies that we learned of this morning, they crossed this swollen river. They didn't have a bridge to take them across, but they were able to get across. But we're talking here now about two million people, including uh, 500,000 ladies and a million kids, and it's, it's gonna be a job for a big crowd like this. So it's, it's a problem. Many times, we look at the problems and the difficulties of our lives and we see them as more troublesome than they really are. We have our problems and we put on these special glasses and, and those glasses magnify our problems. The Canaanites and the Moabites probably ferried across this river all the time. And during the dry season, they waded across without any difficulties. Nevertheless, at this point, in God's good timing, the Lord led them here at this point in time, the river was flooded. It's as large as it's going to ever be. It, uh, I don't know, was it the size of the Spokane River? I don't know. I've seen pictures of it. I've done a little study of it. It's, it's, it's not much, but uh, it's a problem for them. There were no bridges. There probably were ferries there during the rest of the time, but the Canaanites most likely destroyed the ferries or uh, picked them up and moved them way back away from the river just to make sure the Israelites did not get across. Not only does Satan wish to keep us from our full potential, but there are just natural obstacles out there that make, us, make it difficult for us to be all that we are supposed to be for the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel needed the intervention of the omnipotent God to get two million people into the promised land. But I guarantee most of those people didn't think, if I don't trust Jehovah, we won't make it. Most of those people gave faith in the Lord, no thought whatsoever in solving this problem. The natural man, even the ordinary Christian, doesn't usually think about trusting God for his needs. We don't read or apply God's instructions to Joshua. Trust me. We just, we skip over that part. We don't hear Joshua instructing Israel, fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's what Moses said to Israel before the crossing of the Red Sea. And perhaps this is a part of our struggle in regard to practical faith. Time and time again, we leap over our need for the Lord, jumping right in to the problem. I'm going to solve this. I can do this. I just need to think about it more, meditate on answers that I need to give. Uh, I need to strengthen this area, that area, that sort of thing. Time and time again, we leap over our need to trust the Lord. 
Or we may believe that God will carry us through this problem, but we don't really buckle down with our faith, beseeching the Lord to do it. We expect the Lord to do it without ever really applying ourselves to the subject of faith and trust. We make assumptions. We may expect God to bless and work, but we don't necessarily ask him to do it for us. We don't apply our faith. But as Paul puts it in Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And therefore, without faith, it should be impossible to expect God's miraculous blessings. Now that entire verse, 6 from Hebrews 11, says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Pay attention in the last words. He is a rewarder to them that diligently seek him. It's one thing to believe that God will accomplish his will. We hope that it will include crossing this river. But it's something else to cast ourselves down before his throne of grace, diligently beseeching him for this river that I have to cross. In other words, the faith which we need, the faith which brings down the unfathomable power of God, doesn't generally fall on those who do not recognize the need in the first place. I can handle this, God. I don't need you. But you do need him. But for the most part, we, as I say, jump over that, not recognizing the need. In my reading about the revival which uh, transformed Wales, and last week the revival which fell on the Charlotte Baptist Church in Edinburgh in, in 1905, and that which engulfed the ministries of William Fettler and, and J.A. Stewart, those great blessings were granted to people who earnestly and fervently sought them from God. Lord, we need these. We want these. We yearn for these. In some cases, the Lord tested their faith by forcing them to be faithful in faith for a long period of time. Years before the fire ever fell from heaven. Of course, every situation is different. God's blessings may come in different ways and at different speeds. That's not our department, that's up to the Lord. But the fact is, in order for Joshua to experience God's victory over this water, he needed to become burdened about the need for the Lord's blessing. We are so prone as Christians to become lackadaisical, just going with the flow, so to speak, using the river. And the first thing to go in this attitude is, is faith. So there's a need in your life. 
there is a difficult decision to be made, a life-changing medical issue, family problems. There's some problem in your life, some need in your life. Just Don't just expect your loving Heavenly Father to meet that need as He has done in the past while you go on in your everyday experience without really confronting the problem or the Lord. Tell Him. Tell Him how much you love Him. Tell Him how much you yearn for His glory even in this matter. Plead with Him for the blessing. It's okay to tell Him what you think is the best way to get across the river. Lord, if it was up to me, I'd prefer a bridge. Six-lane bridge. So I, I, I don't trust ferries. Uh, they can always sink under a big crowd. Uh, so I, I prefer a, a bridge. There's nothing wrong with telling the Lord what you really would like to see. But at the same time, we need to tell him that we are for willing to forsake whatever plans or hopes we might have so that he might be glorified and he'd do it his way. But it's all right to say, Lord, this is what I'd really like to see. It's okay. After recognizing the need for trust in God, there was a need to share that need with the rest of Israel. God revealed to Joshua the divine plan that he had for the invasion of Canaan. Now, as the shepherd of the Lord's congregation, it was time for Joshua to share that vision with Israel. Mark it down. I think we've said it before. I think Austin has said it a time or two. There is always a human at the point of leadership. God always comes to a Moses and says, here's the law, make sure these people have it. He always has a, a Paul. He has someone there to take the leadership. There is a Nehemiah who takes the people of Israel back to the land. That sort of thing. This time it's Joshua. So the Lord explains to Joshua what uh, the revival is going to entail. Mm -hmm. He tells Joshua, this is how we're going to cross the river. And now it's Joshua's job, by faith, expressing his trust in the Lord, to tell Israel, this is what God has said. This is how it's going to happen. And he shares that with those folk. There, there will never be any revival or massive victories until there is some unity within the congregation or the nation. Now, that revival may start with a single man or a single godly woman. And they may pray for this great blessing of the Lord. But it's not going to happen until there is a number of people who catch this fire and it begins to spread. Joshua is given the plan and God's vision and he shared it with the elders of the nation. Verse number three. And they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. Follow it. 
Verse 9. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither, hear the words of the Lord your God. Verse 13. It shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. As I've said before, faith is a difficult thing, even for the best of saints. Surrendered trust in God for whatever the Lord chooses to do is hard. God's power, grace, and will are not easy for most Christians. I guess I've said that three times now. Try not to say it again. Sometimes weak believers need something into which they can Sink their teeth, shall we say. Here is something specific to pray about. Here is something specific in which you can trust the Lord. This is what the Lord is going to do. Here are the promises that he has given to you. Take those promises. Grasp those promises. Move with those promises. Joshua told the people, this is what's going to happen. When you see it, you'll know to believe it. Four of our strongest priests are going to pick up the Ark of the Covenant and carry it toward the river. I want everyone to stand back, whirl back, about three quarters of a mile away from the priests, but you watch what they're doing. You follow at a distance. It's important that everyone see exactly what is taking place so that your faith might be in the Lord. Initially, the feet, this is as I picture it, the feet of the first two priests got wet because it was necessary that their faith be tested. They stepped into the river and uh, there was water there. But the moment the second pair of priests touched the water, the current stopped. And the water to the north will will not flow past them. It'll stop. In fact, the water behind the first wave, the water behind the first wave stopped, and then the second wave hit the first wave, and the water started piling up in a heap off to the north, off to the right of the priests. It looked, I picture an old slapstick comedy cartoon with everybody bumping into each other. The water bumping into each other till there was a heap of water. How high did that heap eventually become? Was it as high as the water of the Red Sea? Most of these people had never seen that. Did it tower above those priests? Ten feet? Was it pulsating? Threatening the priests. Can you trust God here? Huh? Can you? Was it testing their faith once again? We're not told how far the water backed up toward the Sea of Galilee because there weren't any Hebrews up there to uh, uh, watch it or measure it. 
Downstream from the priests, the Lord was going to dry up the riverbed and Israel would have a mile more to cross through the riverbed if they chose to do so. It's all dry downhill there. Sometimes we need to hear about the faith of others before we can engage our own faith. Sometimes we need to have uh, the details presented to us. And Israel did. Trust the Lord. Brethren, we have no idea what real revival is like. But others have experienced it. Josiah in the Old Testament. The 120 in the New Testament. History affords us other examples. Revival... Real revival would blow our spiritual socks off. It would probably damage uh, our perspective of practical theology. Now what are we going to do with this situation? There may be 3,000 people saved in a day, all clamoring for baptism. Are you ready for that? How would you handle that? It might be necessary for the church to authorize some of the other members to get involved in that. There may be a thousand people yearning to be discipled, requiring the ministry of every one of us, not just the pastor and the elders and the deacons. What's going to happen when the river rolls back, displaying the mighty arm of the Lord? Those uh, baby buggies and strollers may not be able to cross the rocky riverbed to get to the other side. You may have to pick up and carry a couple of uh, babes in Christ going all the way over to the promised land. Are we up for it? The question is, do we really want to cross the river? Do we really want the fullness of God's blessings? It may be that we're not ready to hear what the Lord might do. We may not want to hear what God can do. And that may be part of the reason why we are not experiencing those spiritual blessings at this moment. We are not ready for them. Joshua said, listen to me, Israel. Stand back. Watch the power of God. Moving forward, let me take you to something that we have not yet considered in this series. There is such a thing as the, how shall I put it, idolatry of faith. We need to ask ourselves, I need to ask myself, why do I yearn for God's power and blessing? Why do I want revival? It's not that we might consume it upon our lusts, is it? Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. James chapter 4 and verse number 3. Why are we seeking revival? Why do we long for a great influx of newly born again souls, believers? Is it so that our reward in heaven will be great? 
Is it so that uh, the, the, uh, the finances of the church will be stronger with more members? Is it to create a legacy that will remain after our departure? Why do we want these things? If these are our objects, then even our faith in God, our faith in God for good things is corrupted. And then there's the possibility that we begin to look to our faith more than we look to the God in whom we trust. Remember how easy it is for a non-believer to trust his prayer for salvation rather than to trust the Lord? Well, Christians can do the same thing in a slightly different way. We can trust our trust. We can trust our faith. We can even worship our faith. This is a part of the problem with the charismatic name it and claim it preachers. There's too much emphasis on the faith rather than on the Lord. Don't be consumed with seeking faith. I need more faith. I need more faith. Don't be bothered by strengthening your faith. Yes, your faith needs to be strengthened. Mine does too. Don't worry about using your faith. Take take no thought saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? Or how shall we cross this river? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Our responsibility is to look unto the Lord, not to our faith. We need to focus on the Lord. We need to, be, uh, to prioritize the Lord in our lives. And if we don't, it's idolatry. Another aspect of the idolatry of faith is exposed in verse number 5. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Do we want the Lord's wonders enough to thoroughly separate ourselves and to sacrifice ourselves to the Lord? Are we willing to trust? Are we really, are we willing to truly set ourselves apart in order to see the Jordan River dry up? Sanctify yourselves. Joshua isn't talking about people separating themselves from the world. He's talking to Israel who is already absolutely unique. That's not their problem. This wasn't about tending church regularly. For 40 years now, they've had the tabernacle and the ministry of the priests, Moses' leadership. This was about self-examination. This is about looking into the heart to find those idols that might be in there that hinder our relationship with the Holy One of Israel. This was about destroying those idols. Before the border patrol will allow us to enter the country, we have to pass the COVID test. Sanctify yourselves. You're not getting in. When God's victories come, they need, in a limited way, to be memorialized. 
As I understand it, chapter 4 begins with instructions for two monuments to commemorate this great day. After the nation successfully crossed the river, and before the priests completed their journey, twelve strong men, one from each of the tribes, were to return to the river to pick up the largest boulders that they could find. Verse 9. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there unto this day. They piled up these boulders as a memorial right there in the middle of the river. It might be argued that when the waters return, they're going to push these boulders around and they may not be there for a very long time. That's not our problem. The Lord said, do it for my honor and glory. We do it. Not for the ability to say, I was one of the twelve. I put one of those boulders up there. That's not it. When that was done, and with those priests still standing there in the middle of the river with the pulsating water over their heads for a long period of time, after uh, the, the, the uh, first memorial is finished, those men were to go back again and find another border, boulder to bring back to the western shore. My imagination is always running sometimes in poor directions, I picture them scrounging around among the rocks in the river to find one as big as possible. 10,000 eyes over there on the other side watching them. They're in the spotlight. They're enjoying themselves. When one man sees that another man has a boulder bigger than he is carrying... Well, he drops his and starts looking around for another one as big as that guy's or bigger. There might have been some friendly competition. This was a glorious day. This may have been the happiest day in the lives of those people. For 40 years they've been struggling in the wilderness. Now they're crossing into Jordan or crossing the Jordan into, into Canaan. This is the happiest day of their lives. And everyone was enjoying themselves, including the 12 guys in the middle of the, the riverbed. Eventually, each man has the largest stone he could carry. And then he returned to stand in front of their watching families and others there on the western side of the river. And those 12 stones, which they took out of Jordan, did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us, Caleb and, and me, until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord. 
that it is mighty, that you might fear the Lord your God forever. A moment ago I said, when God's victories come, they need, in a limited way, to be memorialized. When Judy and I were in North Carolina back in September, we visited the Sandy Creek Baptist Church. And there between their brand new modern edifice and the cemetery that was off to, I guess that would be the uh, north side of the building, or northwest side of the building, there was a large granite memorial to Shubal Stearns, the first pastor of the Sandy Creek Baptist Church. I have a hunch that if Stearns had been able to come out of his grave, which was another 100 yards over into the cemetery, if Stearns had been able to come out of that grave and speak to me, I think uh, he might have said, I don't like that memorial. Stearns and Marshall didn't go to Georgia and the Carolinas for fame and fortune. They went there as the servants of the Most High God to show unto the people the way of salvation, the way Paul and Silas did in Philippi. If Stearns had been able to speak, I believe he might have said, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Sandy Creek until we were passed over and settled here as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. I wonder what Joshua thought when he heard the Lord say, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel. Did his heart immediately think, Lord, I... I don't care whether or not I'm magnified, so long as you are. I am well aware, I am painfully aware, that one of the greatest sins in the hearts of God's leaders is pride. Did Joshua think along the lines of John, he must increase, I must decrease. Not my glory, but thine be magnified. God's great victories are never about the people to whom the victories were given. God's victories are all about God. And in contrast to what some are saying today, God's richest blessings are not dispensed in order that our lives in this world might be improved. Made a little richer, a little smoother, a little less pain. God's greatest victories are given that God's people might fear the Lord their God. When we extend our necks, when we step out of the boat onto the water of the Sea of Galilee, our faith should be dedicated to the glory of the Lord. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord is mighty. And that we and they might fear the Lord our God.
That's what it's all about. Please stand.